take your Bibles and open them. One of the things we, we do is uh, we read from the scriptures to hear God's voice at the beginning, and I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 1, which if you're using the Pew Bible is on page 1. And I'm just going to read verses 26 and 27. <clears throat> Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And you can be seated. the message I'm giving today stands against the current in which our culture flows. And I'm aware of that. I proceed with a spirit of humility and care. I'm grateful that our culture has made great strides in advocating for the equality of women. These are strides that I applaud and which I would argue are only possible because the soil was plowed by the culture-defying blade of God's Word. If God's Word had not cut counter to the culture for centuries, I believe women today would not have the equality that they deserve. And so I am not ashamed to allow God's Word to continue to cut counter to the culture. Our culture, our culture tells us that it's sexist and misogynist to deny women any role that is available to men. After centuries of progress, we finally reach the point where men and women are interchangeable parts. Sure, the differing amounts of uh, estrogen and testosterone in us mean that we look and think a little bit differently. But on the whole, we're all the same. A husband isn't much different than a wife. A son isn't that much different than a daughter. A male pastor is not that much different from a female pastor. But has that left us in a position where we're really better off? By almost any account, we're increasingly self-centered, self-consumed. A record number of children are growing up in broken homes. Many women still feel the domestic pressures and expectations of the 50s and 60s, yet now they also feel the career pressures and expectations of the past two decades. Men within the home have been relegated to a buffoon, somebody who is an obstacle to be worked around, go off into your man cave and things will be better, and outside of the home, men are expected to love one of four things or more of that, or some combination of them. Uh, sports, beer, gaming, and sex. Unwed pregnancies are at a near record high, which force women to face the choice to abort or enter into parenthood without a father in the picture. And perhaps most telling, Women have never been more commodified and objectified. 
You can listen to our music, watch our movies, look at our commercials, read our magazines, or study the statistics. Too often in our society, women have been reduced to short-term sex tools for lust-filled men. So we've engineered our society and our self-congratulating wisdom, constructing a modern-day Babel, a monument to our own greatness and wisdom. But the base of the monument is crumbling. And yet we're so confident that we've got the right recipe that no one seems to notice. The emperor has no clothes, but heaven forbid that anyone should question the tailor. We've been led to believe there's only two alternatives. The glassy-eyed, robotic, doormat woman, as typified by the Stepford Wives, or the obliteration of all distinction where men and women are simply interchangeable parts. But I don't think those are the only two options. I think that when we look to God's design, we'll actually find a third way. A way that values both men and women as equals in God's eyes, and yet allows them to be beautiful and wonderful in how they are distinct from one another. One aspect of that that the Bible teaches is a concept called male headship. When I say male headship, this is, this is what the Bible means when it talks about male headship. It's as simple as this. God has called on men to lead by loving and serving their families and churches in a way that reflects God's sacrificial love. As simple as that. God has called on men to lead by loving and serving their families and churches in a way that reflects God's sacrificial love. So if that's what headship is, let me tell you what it's not. And for this, I want you to, uh, hopefully you still have your Bibles open, Genesis, just turn one page over to chapter 3. Headship does not mean men domineering over their wives. Look at verse 16. After sin comes into the world, and the reign of death begins, and everything is in bondage and corrupt. God makes some pronouncements about how things are going to be. And look at the end of verse 16. He says this to the woman. He says, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. There's a vying for dominance here, but they vie in different ways. This, is, this helps you understand this to look just at chapter 4, verse 7 of Genesis. This should be on the same page or just the next page over. Um, God is talking to Cain, and Cain's tempted to sin. At the end of verse 7, he says of sin, its desire is for you, same word, but you must rule over it, same word. So, so, Desire refers to the outsider's want to invade the other's life and control it, right? That's what sin wanted to do with Cain. Come into his life, invade it, and control it. So 
It results in kind of the nagging and manipulation. Rule over, on the other hand, conveys a sense of complete mastery and dominance, right? Cain was to have complete mastery and dominance over sins so that it wasn't controlling him. So, the nagging wife and the domineering husband, the Bible says, are products of a fallen world. So if that's your picture of male headship, if that's what you've been led to believe male headship is, it's wrong. In fact, even within the church, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, Paul, or Peter specifically tells the elders of the church, the heads of the church, they are not to domineer over those in their charge. So let me put it this way. The hierarchical, misogynist view that men are superior and women are inferior is nearly opposite of what male headship is. In fact, think of it this way. It is, it is the problematic situation to which the Bible's teaching on male headship is part of the solution. It's trying to solve this problem. Now, I think society looks at that, that picture, dominance, controlling, all these types of things, and says something needs to be fixed. And they've, they've kind of tried to come up with their own way of fixing these things. In some ways, they've gotten it right. In other ways, I think they've gotten it wrong. But we agree on what the problem is. But I believe if we don't follow the Bible's path out of that mess, we inevitably get stuck back in it. It's my experience that when you walk into a high school or a university today, and you see these enlightened relationships, many of them are the same as they've always been. Your desire is for him, and he shall rule over you. When man is his own rudder, apart from God, we are inevitably steered in unhealthy ways. So how does the Bible describe headship? You heard earlier my definition, but I want to look specifically at passages where it describes it. So take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 978 if you're using the Pew Bible. 978, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 22 to 31. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For never, no one ever hated his own flesh, 
but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So you saw the word head there, right? Christ, or the, the man is the head. Husbands are referred to as the head. But then in verses 26 or 25 through 31, you saw what it looks like. What does it mean to be the head? It means love your wives in the sacrificial way that Christ loved the church. Love your wives as your own bodies. Nourish and cherish them. That's God's call to men. And you get the same idea when elders are addressed. So I mentioned 1 Peter 5 before, but you guys can turn there. It's on page 1016. 1016, 1 Peter 5. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You hear that? Shepherd the flock. Not under compulsion, but willingly. Not domineering. Setting an example. Looking to the example of the chief shepherd, Jesus. I'm going to read from one other passage. You don't have to turn there, but it's from Acts 20. It says, Paul's giving instructions to these elders, and he says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see me again face to face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. You hear that? The same heart. Paul didn't account his own life as precious. He wasn't going to shrink from declaring anything from God's word that would help them. He's paying careful attention. He calls on them to pay careful attention and to care for the very bride that Christ obtained with his own blood. So that's headship according to the Bible. Did you notice that it didn't say anything about make sure that people do what you say? Doesn't didn't say anything about demand that they follow your every word. Didn't even say, now there's calls on the, the church to submit to its leaders. There's calls on wives to submit their husbands. And we've talked about that in the past. But it doesn't say, husbands and elders, make sure people are submitting to you. 
It's all that tone of love and care and shepherd. Declare truth in a gentle and loving way, giving of your own self for their, for their good. God has called on men to lead by loving and serving their families and churches in a way that reflects God's sacrificial love. I mean, I'll hit you. It's not the boogeyman its opponents have made it out to be, eh? In fact, you might say it's a beautiful picture. Now, if God has called on men to lead in love, there are certain roles biblically that only men should fill because these roles are native to the call of headship. And the Bible only explains two such roles within the church. So there's two, only two areas that the Bible says these are things because God has uniquely called on men to be the head. There are only two such roles that, that men alone should fill. The first is the role of elder or overseer. I know we're in a lot of different passages today, and I appreciate you bearing with me, but turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's on page 992 of these pew Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 992. If you look in verse 1, he's talking about the office of overseer. And then the first qualification in verse 2, look at it. What is it? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then it says, the husband of one wife. Or if you look at the footnote, uh, a man of one woman. The underlying assumption, as you can tell, in this call to monogamy is that the overseer is male. In fact, if you look at verses 4 and 5, it says that his ability to manage his own household or be the head of his own home is a prerequisite qualification from being able to assume the same role within the church. This understanding that Paul's talking about a male becomes undeniable when you look down just a little bit further to get the qualifications for a deacon. Because there, if you look in verse 11, it talks about the qualification for a female deacon or as some have interpreted, the wife of a deacon. So if in the other qualifications, there, were, there was um, both men and women in view in giving those qualifications, it wouldn't make sense then to single out the qualifications for women in verse 11. So if God has uniquely called on men to lead in love, the role of an elder or overseer is uniquely a male role. The other role reserved for men is that of explaining and exhorting from God's word to uh, adult men. So stay in 1 Timothy and look at chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 to 15. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now I want to just take a few minutes to unpack what this is saying and what it's not saying. This is an important passage for us to understand if we're thinking about this issue. First, it begins, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now that word quiet doesn't mean that you can't speak. Because if you look just a little bit ahead in, chapter, in verse 2, it talks about how we need to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way in our interactions with civil, civic society. So it's the same word quiet there. Doesn't mean we can never ever speak when we're out in public, right? It talks about, it's, it's more of a demeanor with which we carry ourselves. There's a meek and quiet spirit with which we should carry ourselves. So that's what Paul is saying there. He's not demanding absolute silence from women, or from anyone for that matter. Then he goes on to say, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, you have examples in the New Testament where women teach. So, for, in, for instance, Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife team, are said to teach Apollos. Or, as when, when we're going through Colossians, we saw that all of us are called to teach one another. We have the example of Timothy, whose mother and grandmother taught him the scriptures at a young age. So this isn't a prohibition against all teaching. Rather, it's key to see it as linked with this word, teach or exercise authority. There is a kind of teaching that is a teaching with authority, saying, thus saith the Lord. An authoritative type teaching that Paul is saying, that is not something that I permit a woman to do. If, you, if you're One of the places that's been helpful for me is a little bit ahead and explaining exactly what that is in chapter 4, verse 13. Paul talks about uh, read the scriptures, exhort from the scriptures, and teach in light of the scriptures. That's what he calls on Timothy to do. I think that's the kind of teaching that Paul has in mind here. It's a teaching that is native to men who are male heads. So if there's a mixed audience, men and women together, Paul's saying, I don't permit a woman to explain and exhort God's word in that context. Doesn't mean that women aren't gifted as teachers. In fact, women have great gifts as teachers and should be using that within the church. The first uh, teacher training class that I did here at the church was a class just for women. Because when you look to the New Testament, you see God prioritizing women's hunger for God's word and investing in women so they could learn his word and sit at the feet of Jesus, right? You think of Mary and Martha where Martha's busy being the hostess and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better way. That is right and that is good. This isn't speaking about the capacity or the quality or the gifting of men or women. It's talking about something as God has uniquely called on men to fill a certain role that they need to be doing. Then he gives a reason for it, okay? He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
Now, this isn't that kind of juvenile, I got there first, second is the second, or is just the first loser. It's, it's not that tone of whoever got there first is better. Right? This is just a description, a factual description of what happened in Genesis 1 through 3. And it's really important because as you see, as we move through this, all that Paul is doing here in verses 13 and 14 and 15 is summarizing exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. And why is it important that Adam was formed first? If you go back to Genesis 2, God gives a specific command in verses 16 and 17 that says, hey, you can eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Why is it important that Adam was created first? Because as you read the the timeline in Genesis, Eve hadn't been created when that command was given. That command was given to Adam, and Eve would have only known about it through Adam. Which is why he goes on to say, and Adam was not deceived the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, this is not saying women are more gullible than men, all right? This is actually describing what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve both ate of the fruit, right? In fact, the rest of the scriptures, when they talk about how sin came into the world, they don't talk about Eve's eating of the fruit. They talk about Adam's eating of the fruit, which is peculiar since Eve ate first, right? And this is explaining what happened. Here we are, Adam and Eve standing together, and the serpent comes and starts talking to Eve, who did not hear the command directly from God. Adam, who did, is standing right next to her and isn't saying anything. And so the woman who didn't hear that is actually deceived by the serpent and eats of the fruit. She becomes a transgressor. But Adam, who knew exactly what was going on and knew what God had said, was not deceived. He ate fully knowing he was disobeying God. So Eve sees this looks desirable, it looks right, it looks good. Adam's not saying anything. He's giving his tacit approval. This must be acceptable to God. And she eats. But that's not how Adam ate. Adam was not deceived. And he ate of the fruit. So God was In that garden, God was showing us something, that God had entrusted Adam to care for his wife, to love her sacrificially. And he'd entrusted God's word, his word to Adam, to lead her in that way. And he failed to do it. What Paul is saying is, let's not repeat the error of the Garden of Eden. God has called on men in a specific way to hold out the word of God. And let's have them do it. And let's have them do it not like Adam did. Just kind of putting your hands back and saying, go ahead, go whatever direction you want. But take some leadership and show some direction in your church. Now, the fact that this is just going through what happened in in Genesis 1 through 3 becomes even more clear when you get to verse 15. It's like this random verse, yet she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What in the world is that talking about? Well, do you remember right after the sin, what happened? God pronounced the curses. I already looked at one of them. One of them that he gives to the serpent He says, there's going to be fighting between the offspring of Eve and you. 
And eventually, an offspring from Eve, you're going to strike at his, at his heel, but he's going to strike at your head. That's a picture pointing forward to Christ. That through Eve's offspring, salvation was going to come. It's as if Paul says, you know what, hey, I, I know that I'm saying this, that, that you know, there's a difference between how men and women are to function in the church in this p- specific capacity of teaching, but I, I want you to know something. Remember that after the fall, what did God say? He said it was through the woman that salvation was going to come. Through her offspring. So Paul's issue here is not, hey, who's better or who's more important in the church or who has a more significant role in what God's doing in the world? No. Remember Eve. It was through her offspring that Satan's head was going to be crushed. Of course, this is true only for those who embrace Christ and continue in faith and love, holiness, self-control. So that's 1 Timothy 2. And there's one other passage we need to look at and understand as a church if we're going to be thinking rightly on this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. It's on page 961. As I'm turning there, I want, I want to tell you, um, I put at the back information table this, these packets that are called 50 Crucial Questions as it relates to... Um, biblical headship and the roles of men and women within that and I I think almost any question you could think of is addressed in that booklet and addressed with a very sound biblical perspective so if I'm saying things and your head's kind of swimming or you're getting uneasy and your skin crawls a little bit or something like that that's all right I know some of these things you know wrestling through these passages it might be the first time you're doing that or or you might you know you might have heard so much from the culture, different things, and so you're going, that doesn't sound right to me. Take time and process it. You don't need to be in a hurry. Uh, we're not trying to put pressure on anyone. But that, that packet back there would be very helpful in doing that. So, chapter 14, picking up in the middle of verse 33, page 961. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. In order to understand this passage again, we need to understand what he's talking about when he says not speaking, or being quiet, or silent. He's not saying they can't talk or participate in the worship service. How do we know that? Because we don't just read a few verses in isolation. This was written as part of a broader book, 1 Corinthians, and 1 Corinthians addressing a variety of things, including how we behave in our public worship service. In chapter 11, he deals with one area specifically, and there he's talking about there's been some chaos going on in the worship service, and he says, all right, Women should be praying in the service and they should be prophesying in the service. And there's debate about what prophecy means. I take it to be kind of a, a, a speaking God's word into the, the situation of the day. So it's, it's, it has, has with it, you know, some of those kind of teaching elements where you're uh, talking about the Bible. And he's calling on women to do that. Now in chapter 11, he's saying, and when you do it, do it in such a way that you show deference to 
the male heads. That's, that's kind of the, the focus there in chapter 11. But nonetheless, he's saying you should be praying and prophesying. So when you get here, you know already that Paul thinks women should be praying and prophesying in the church. So what can he mean? It seems like he's saying something different here. No, because again, we read things within the context. So look at what's talked about just ahead of that. Look at verse 26. It says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the, build, uh, for the building up. Now, then he starts talking about different ways this should be done, and he gets to verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So what he's saying is, hey, previously in your church, everybody was kind of talking over and saying, oh, I got something more important to say. Oh, I got something more important to say. He's saying, no, no, no. When you prophesy, just take turns. Go one by one. But then he says this in verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. What he means is that just because someone stands up and shares something that God's put on their heart doesn't make it true. And so he says, just like John says about testing the spirits, that's kind of what he's talking about here. He's establishing there needs to be this group whose job it is to evaluate and discern what's being said and say, is, is what's being said in that prophetic message a healthy thing? So the spirits of the prophets are subject to this body of prophets, right? So there's this group of people who are critiquing and evaluating the prophecies that are being spoken. And in order for the church in Corinth, which that was their order of service, in order for that to function well, he's saying, no, no, we need to get a little bit of control over what's being said. There needs to be a group of people who are evaluating, critiquing, giving some input on what's being said to make sure it's right doctrine, to make sure it's in line with God's word. And then right after that, he says, I don't permit a woman to speak. The context is within that smaller body of those who are evaluating and critiquing the general speaking of the prophets. So women are not to take part in the critique and evaluating of the prophecy because that's a headship role. But that doesn't mean, Paul says, that doesn't mean they can't raise questions. They might have very good questions or concerns. Paul says, no, those are important things to bring up. But bring them up, not in the middle of the worship service, like you're an elder, but later on with your husbands instead of usurping male headship within the service. Now, I know those, those are two kind of heavy passages to wade through, especially if this is an issue maybe that you're not real comfortable with or makes you a little uneasy. And now we've gone to these two passages in Scripture that, whew, what's going on? You can take a deep breath. It's all right. Continue to go to God's Word. Let Him speak to you. Open up your heart to Him. I'm explaining quickly what's taken me years to come to understand with studying. Does God call, does God's unique call to men to lead within their families and their churches mean of necessity that women are second class citizens? 
I don't think it does. In fact, I'm, I know it doesn't. Because the Bible makes clear that men and women are alike created in God's image. Both are equal heirs of salvation. Both are equally important within the church. Both, the Bible takes pains to point out, are dependent on one another. Here's what I want to say to you. We don't have to choose between equality and distinction. As with so many other issues in the Bible, we must hold a fine line, a razor's edge, lest we fall to one side or the other into error. Think, think of some of the issues in the Bible. Are we saved by gra- if we're saved by grace and not works, well, shouldn't, shouldn't we just keep on sinning? Hey, that means the more I sin, the more grace abounds, right? No, we've got to hold that line. Yes, we're not saved by our works. But there's something transformative about the gospel that calls us to start to live a certain way. We hold the line. Am I a Christian because God chose me apart from my own will as if I'm some sort of robot? Or did I choose God as a result of my own wisdom and my own sound judgment? Neither both fall off the edge that the scriptures hold out, right? God chooses us, yet we willingly with our own volition, repented and trusted him. We hold the line. Should, should I pursue earthly pleasure and find that it's empty? Or should I myself abstain from all pleasure and become sort of killjoy? No. Again, you're falling off the line. As we pursue Christ, we find him to be our greatest pleasure and our greatest joy. We walk the fine lines of Scripture. God has created men and women as equals. Each is vital vital in the church and the family. And God has also created us distinct from one another. And one aspect of that is male headship. If we fail to hold both of these truths and embrace both of these truths and embrace the tension that is there and hold that line, we plunge into error. Hold only to male and female equality and you end up obliterating all the beautiful distinctions that God has made when he made male and female as complementary to one another. But hold only the distinguishing features between the genders. Hold only to male headship, and you often end up having men domineer over women. Such an error leaves men puffed up, treating women in condescending ways. And both errors nullify the word of God. We must hold the line. In Jesus' ministry, the epilogues to Paul's various letters in the book of Acts, you see the prominence of women within God's heart and within the church. It was predominantly women who remained loyal to Jesus even during his crucifixion. Women were the first witnesses of the resurrection. It appears that women hosted some of the burgeoning local church meetings in their homes. And women were described as fellow laborers 
for the gospel. But their prominence and importance is never described in a way that it negates male headship. I was thinking of... uh, Karen and I swing dance. I don't know if that's going to get me kicked out or something. Um, In Texas, I couldn't say that. But... uh, um, when I was first taking lessons at the University of Chicago, um, in ballroom, there's, there's clear etiquette. The male is the lead. And the dance only works when there's one person leading. If you get two people leading, it doesn't work. And I remember, you know, the, the, the instructors going around, and, and uh, one of my friends was dancing with the instructor, and he kept telling her, no, you're leading. You're leading. It doesn't work that way. And similarly, when the female instructor came along, she, even though she was way better than me, was saying, no, you need to lead, you need to lead, you need to lead, because that's how the dance works. And yet, they also taught us that the woman is the important part of the dance. So even in swing dance, the posture of the man is supposed to be lower than the woman. He's there serving her and helping her in her dance. And that, that's most of ballroom dancing. Just because one has been assigned as the lead doesn't mean he's more important. Or let me put it like this. If I'm standing in a room with my family, and for whatever reason, a live grenade comes into the room, I'm the one laying on the grenade. That's my responsibility. Not because I'm more important than Karen. Just the opposite. She's the one I value. She's the one who's treasured. She's the one who's to be protected and cared for. Being the head does not mean that you're more important or more valued. In 1 Corinthians 11, we learn that God the Father is the head of Christ, God the Son. In John 5, 19 and 6, 38, Jesus explicitly states that he follows the Father's lead. He submits himself to the Father. Does that make God the Father more important than God the Son? Does that mean that they are somehow less than equals within the Godhead? Obviously not. And so when God makes mankind in his own image, we shouldn't be surprised to find differing roles between two equal persons. Maple Avenue. I want to appeal to you in the same way I appeal to myself every week as I prepare to preach. I appeal to you, I appeal to us to hold the line. Don't hold one truth more firmly than the other. Don't hold tightly to the truths in the Bible that you like, but hold loosely to the ones you like less. Hold the line. Embrace the tensions. God's ways are always good. 
and I believe they're sorely needed today. The increasingly hard, rock-filled soil of our culture needs the countercultural blade of God's word. Indeed, our own hearts and our own church needs this blade. Now, before I sit down, I want to make one personal comment. I, I usually don't do that in a sermon. Um, but this is so important to me, I want to say it. Uh, many of you know that our church currently has a woman teaching our mixed adult Sunday school class. Her name's Janet Armstrong. And I want to say, Janet is my friend. And I appreciate her. I'm encouraged by her. And I've learned from her. And she and I have been talking about this whole thing, and both of us don't want to allow this issue or this teaching paper to be a referendum on Janet. So those of you who are longtime Maple Avenue people, you can't hear this issue as that. It cannot be a referendum on Janet. Janet or any current teacher who can affirm the teaching positions voted in by the church will continue to teach. Obviously, in light of what we studied, there might be some tweaks or modifications of how that's done. But it is not our goal in addressing this to remove Janet or anyone else from teaching. Our goal is to make clear what God's Word says. At no time has this particular truth been more under attack and perhaps at no time has this truth been more needed. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy things that we are considering. We're considering them because we want to let your word be our rudder. For some of us, these truths are uncomfortable because they fly in the face of so much what we've been told, what we've been taught. Others of us know the beauty of what's been described in these verses and rejoice and thank you for how you've created the world. But I pray that Maple Avenue would be a church, as it has been, that will continue to hold the line of God's word and not blow in the winds of culture. Pray in Christ's name.